Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Slash Film Daily. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and today I wanted to present my interview with director Barry Jenkins. Jenkins directed the 2016 Best Picture winner Moonlight, and now he is back with another knockout drama. It's called If Beale Street Could Talk, and it's an adaptation of author James Baldwin's celebrated novel. The movie tells the story of Tish, played by Kiki Lane, and Fonny, played by Stephen James, a young black couple who are deeply in love and trying to make it in New York City in the 1970s. But when Fonny is falsely accused of rape, Tish is left to fight to clear his name. I will link to our full review of the movie in the show notes, so I encourage you to read that. But last month, I sat down with Jenkins to talk about his life post-Moonlight, how spontaneity and collaboration resulted in some of Beale Street's most memorable moments, the challenge of adapting such a beloved novel, and much more. Without further ado, here is our interview with Barry Jenkins. Well, congratulations on this movie. It's lovely and thank you heartbreaking, much, and uh, thank you, I've really enjoyed it. Um, also, you. congratulations on Moonlight. I haven't spoken to you since uh, oh. that movie won Best Picture. I'm, I'm curious about directors after mm-hmm. they win Best Picture. Have you noticed a significant shift in uh, opportunities being available to you since then? Yeah, I mean, definitely a shift in opportunities being available. You know, what I like to say is, you know, I, if I send an email now, I actually know that there will be a reply. Um, or if I leave a voicemail, somebody will return. Um, which, you know, in this industry, in this town, um, your, your career is often geared around at first, trying to get people to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think my career is geared around trying to be very diligent and wise about how often to say no. And so that's been the biggest change. Yeah. Um, this movie is, like, sensual in a way that I feel mm-hmm. like most American movies are not. Is that is that vibes, that feeling, something that is like inherently baked into you as a storyteller? Where, where does that come from for you? Um, so, so I got to say a couple of things. I can't say it's baked into me as a storyteller. You know, both these films have been adaptations, you know, of other people's work, James uh, James Baldwin and Terrell Avon McCraney. Um, so I think the credit, you know, must originate with them uh, for creating these pieces that one speak to something very vital about American life, but without, um, without sacrificing the sensuality, you know, of everyday experience. Um, um, I don't know. I can't. I can't say that. You know, unlike most American films, that, that you said that, not me. <laughs> um, but but I think it is something that that we all sort of encounter in our everyday life. 
um, just because there's many different depictions of sensuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see no reason to take that out of the work sure. or to be afraid to revel in it, you know, in the work, which I think at times in both these films we do. Mm-hmm. And what kind of visual influences did you have going mm-hmm. into this? You know, the biggest one with this, and, you know, James uh, was in Memphis yesterday giving a, a master class on, on cinematography and talking about this film in particular uh, at, at Indie Memphis, and he was saying, and I agreed, that the energy of James Baldwin uh, the way he writes, especially in this film, uh, in this book, the detail with which he writes, was the primary inspiration, the primary source of inspiration. And then, you know, we would try to, the film is not a documentary, but we wanted to find references that really had a fidelity to the experience of Harlem, you know, in the 60s and the early 70s. And we found that mostly in still photography and work by Roy Decarava uh, and Gordon Parks. And so it was a blend of the lushness of Mr. Baldwin's literal syntax, you know, the way he constructs these sentences, and then this beautiful photography of the period is why the film is presented two by one as opposed to the more the more common aspect ratios of one eight five or two three five. Okay. Um, I think my favorite shot of the movie is of Tish and Fonny walking down this really gorgeously lit street mm-hmm. under mm-hmm. this red umbrella and they mm-hmm. turn down a one-way street yeah. and they go the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Were those signs written into the script or mm-hmm. did that just happen no, on the day? No, all or? of that, see, see, this is what I love about making movies. All of that, it wasn't an accident, um, but... You know, we didn't bring in rain. It just poured rain that day. Really? So there was not meant to be an umbrella. You know, like so much of that, of the way we framed that, was not meant to be. Hmm. But, you know, even though this movie had more resources than Moonlight, you know, it's still, you know, a, a small a small budget or a modest budget, I should say. And so we had to work with the elements. And so it just poured rain that day. And so once we got to the setup, it just seemed like, well, what's the best way to film this now gorgeous free uh, free rain that we have <laughs> and uh, it was uh, Diego uh, it was like a, a paraguas is how you say umbrella uh, in, in Spanish and the whole thing just took on this life of its own um, as far as walking left versus right I, know, I think that, that road I don't know if you can tell in the film it kind of slopes down just a little bit and I wanted them to walk uphill as opposed to walking down so they yeah. went right instead of left that makes sense that's, that's so cool that a moment like that that was unplanned sort of gives you more of a, um, a look into their intimacy as well like just the way that he treats her you know that, that they stand together is so you know, so, to, you yeah. know to me I think when you, when you make uh, a film or any kind of art you have to be open to uh, inspiration from the elements from the collaborators and I think what, what I see in that scene that's very lovely is it's one thing for them to walk down the street hand in hand and this is somewhat patriarchal in a certain way but for them to be, you know, funny to hold this umbrella, you mm-hmm. know, for, there's this almost this nurturing kind of quality to it. I think it makes the question he poses just that much more delicate, more intimate, you know, you know, when you come to my place. Yeah, you know? for sure. A lot of the movie is bathed in yellows and greens. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you decided on the color palette for this one. Yeah, it was a, a, a really just purely um, organic process of a collaboration in the run-up to production. Mark Freeberg, the production designer, uh, he would host these salons, and it would be myself, uh, Mark, the production designer, Carolyn Eslin, our costume uh, designer, and James Laxton, our cinematographer, and we would all just get together in Mark's living room slash kitchen, drink wine, and eat hors d'oeuvres, and, and we would just pass around, you know, color splotches, or, or color swatches, excuse me, um, or little still photos, and slowly you saw us kind of coalesce around these ideas, not necessarily color blocking in an intellectual uh, way is this color means this, or this mm-hmm. color means that. 
but you saw all of us really getting into um, color as a manif manifestation of how Tish feels. And that became this series of golds and greens, these very warm, saturated um, colors. When Tish is, because in the film, Tish is kind of in purgatory in a certain way. Fonny's dealing with this ordeal, she's putting this child to term. But when she thinks of these moments, the walk in the rain, you know, or the first time they make love, mm -hmm. that's filtered through memory, you know, and a very lush, beautiful memory, almost a heightened depiction of what actually happened. And as we sort of had these salons, the colors just started to assert themselves. Um, and by the end of pre-pro, it was very clear we were going to make this super saturated, yeah. like vibrantly colored film, very different than Moonlight. That's awesome. Um, the scene between Fonny and Daniel in the kitchen mm -hmm. is like one of the most harrowing things in the movie. Yeah. How did you feel going into that day of shooting? Um, it's a lot of dialogue. It's a lot of dialogue. And it's just two people like you and I sitting across a table. So there's always two questions in, in my mind, which is, it's so much dialogue. How do I make this comfortable for the actors? Because in, in cinema, or not in cinema, but in filmmaking, typically there's all these different angles, you know, and so it's hard for the actors to sort of get in the flow where, you know, they have like 80 lines in that scene, mm -hmm. you know, how do we get from line 20 to line 50 in a way that's organic for the actor as opposed to breaking it up in chunks. So that was the first part of it. The second part of it was, is two people sitting at a table, how do I make that cinematic, right. you know? Um, but it was the last day of production in New York and principal photography, so we had a lot of time to plan it. Um, the set that it takes place on is a build by Mark Freeberg, and so by the time we got to shoot it, we knew the ins and out mm -hmm. of how that set functioned. And it's interesting, you know, I, I, I love talking about that scene because it's one of these really, uh, really lovely experiences for myself and James Laxton of being open to experimentation because we filmed that scene entirely one way, very traditional coverage, um, and then we realized that it wasn't it wasn't operating at the level that we wanted it to. And so we redid the entire thing uh, by putting the camera on sliders mm. and panning the image from one act to the other. Because when we, a lot of the shoot was, was, was dual camera, two cameras. Mm -hmm. And so we started off filming that scene with two cameras. But then by the end of it, we were like, no, we don't need two cameras. Instead of separating them, a camera on him, a camera on him, let's pan from one to the other mm -hmm. and share the energy from Fonny to Daniel. And that's when the whole thing came together. So. It was, you know, not as terrifying as the scene with the two families in the living room, mm -hmm. because the idea of Barry Jenkins having eight actors in a room talking <laughs> is just, like, insane. Yeah. It's not anything I ever thought I would want to do. Um, so that was much more terrifying than the scene with, uh, with, with Stefan and Brian. Mm -hmm. and, and just, like, Brian is incredible in, yeah. that, in that scene. Yeah. What, what was your relationship like with him? Because it seems like that's sort of his centerpiece moment in the film. It, it is, you know, and it's, it is kind of a centerpiece moment for the film in general. You know, we have all these things with these still images in, in the first five minutes and the last five minutes of the film. We actually cut to what I would, saw, I would call documentary photography, mm -hmm. you know, of the era. And, and you see these series of many black men. And I think when Brian Tyree shows up as Daniel, you kind of see a collection of all these experiences, but, but made personal, mm -hmm. you know, in the experience of Daniel Cardi. And so what I said to all the actors was that, you know, I felt like there was going to be a faithful adaptation. And so it takes 20 hours to read the book. It takes two hours to, to watch the film. So what happens to those 18 hours, mm -hmm. you know? And for Brian's character, Daniel, there's so much interior life of that character in the book. You know, he still only shows up for two or three scenes, but you get much more of what Hemingway called the iceberg, all these things beneath the surface. So I said to Brian, who's a big fan of James Baldwin himself, 
you can bring all those things into the performance. You know, you're not going to speak these things, mm-hmm. but you can bring the feeling of all of that into the scene. And he got it, you know, because he loved the source material as much as I did. So you mentioned Baldwin a couple times, and mm-hmm. can you just talk about like the challenge of adaptation for this project? How, I mean, how did you approach man. that? I mean, the, the, the film was not linear, the book is not linear, and then with, with Baldwin, so much of the power in his writing, the story is interesting, of course, you know, the narrative, I'll say the plot is interesting, mm-hmm. of course, but so much of uh, the power of his writing is how he goes into the interior lives of the characters, so you understand how the story is making these characters feel, right? You know, and what those feelings are saying about life in America, about American society. So the challenge was how do we make a film, you know, which is not interior text, you know, which is all surface in a certain way. You know, you're watching these people, you're outside them, you're not inside their heads, you know. But how do you still translate this interior voice? And that was by far the biggest challenge for me. Um, and we have voiceover narration in the film, so that's one way, but it still wasn't coming to me to build a film that was this landscape of faces. And so you could really identify and empathize with how the characters feel instead of being, instead of Baldwin reading to you how the characters feel. Right. Which is the luxury of writing a novel. And, and obviously, like, his legacy looms large over this movie, but yeah. I'm wondering, when you finished the script, did you ever feel a sense of ownership over it? Um... I, I did, but but not in the sense that it was mine. You know, the ownership I felt was the responsibility to to bring this into the world intact, and the responsibility to preserve, you know, and not alter the energy of Mr. Baldwin's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was mine, and that was the thing I possessed. But to take over the story entirely, <clears throat> I, I never felt that. You know, yeah. especially at the script stage. You know, I think once you get on set and you're working with the actors, then that's where okay, now this is mine. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but in the writing, it was always about, this is so damn beautiful, you know? Yeah. Why would I ever want to take this over? You know, it's almost like being in a relationship. You know, I think in the best relationships, you know, the two individuals remain individuals, you know, but they support each other's individuality, mm-hmm. you know, and they grow, you know, together because of it. You know, that's how I felt the process of adapting Baldwin was. And it, just going back to that, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, Fonny and Daniel scene really quickly, I've, I've noticed several scenes in your work that sort of begin with a seemingly um, like a normal situation and yeah. then slowly shift into something like more unnerving. Yeah. Is that uh, creeping unease that occasionally encroaches into your work? Is that like a conscious theme that you like to include? It, 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 you know, it's funny. I don't think I do it consciously, but, but I, I, no doubt uh, I'm, I'm with you. I see that it happens. To me, that's how real life kind of happens, mm-hmm. you know? You know, I think that um, when people get into arguments, one, they're very afraid to express their their angst, and so you tiptoe in. Um, I think with, with these two pieces in particular, because they revolve, you know, Bill Street less so, uh, less focused, uh, less directly, but this idea of black men, mm-hmm. you know, and them accessing their vulnerability, their insecurities, you know, that's not something that happens very easily. And so I think in, you know, the scenes with... Kevin and Sharon and Moonlight in the two scenes that are exclusively between black men in this film but Brian Tyree and Stefan and then Michael Beach and Coleman for me it was very necessary to have fidelity to what I feel like is the lived experience where you have to start off bullshitting let me mm-hmm. just call it what it is you have to start off bullshitting to get to the point where you can be real right um, and you know I'm really proud of especially the scene we just talked about with Stefan and Brian because these are the same men who meet on the sidewalk, cracking jokes, right. big smiles, the same men. And then 10 minutes later, it's like, holy shit, 
is this person going to be able to get up and go to work the next right. morning? You know? Yeah. Uh, to me, that's how life is actually lived. And it's funny. It's not something I ever set out to do intellectually. I don't think of it that way. But there's no doubt, once we get in post, it's clear that's the energy that was put into mm-hmm. it. And yeah, I was thinking of that, and, and even the scene in uh, the Dear White People episode that you directed too, where like that party yeah. scene sort of takes a turn as well. Now, so that's now, like... now look, here, here's the beauty of these things, and maybe you know someday, and I'm sure my publicist listening to this, she's going to cringe, maybe someday I'll just stop writing, because you know, uh, Dear White People is Justin Simeon, mm-hmm. you know, and Moonlight is Terrell Ivan McCraney, and Bill Street is James Baldwin, and it's like, I'm just taking the energy that these men, who, by the way, all happen to be uh, be gay black men. I don't know what, what that is. Someone pointed that out to me. I'm just taking the energy and the things they're revealing, you know, about these characters. And just, again, I'm trying not to fuck it up, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and, and I think what I see as a visual storyteller, the best way to relay those things is through the prism of duration, mm-hmm. you know? You know, and this scene in Bill Street is an extreme version of duration cinema, sure. where it's a 12-minute scene between two people. But I do feel like through duration, you you chart the empathy in a way that you can actually grab onto it and feel it. And you can see the beginning, middle, and end, which allows you to trace the root of it. Do you think you'll, your schedule will allow you to come back to direct another episode of Dear White People? I want to, man. Man, Justin and I were talking about that. (laughs) Justin and I were talking about that. I feel feel so damn bad that I've not been able to get back (laughs) because that was actually, you know, as short as it was, we did that. There was like this 10-day window I had during Moonlight Award season. 10 days off and they carved it out for me our publicist and everyone it was amazing uh, they carved it out and I went and did the episode and I was so damn glad I did because I think filmmaking is this muscle that you have to continuously exercise mm-hmm. and when you're doing this thing talking about work you know whether the work is good or bad you know so far it seems like people think the work is good it can kind of get inside your head a bit mm-hmm. and it was nice to be on set and have this huge problem which is like I don't know these characters. I don't know this world. How do I make it mine? Mm-hmm. Um, and through the voice of Justin Simeon, um, you are correct. We were able to somehow end up doing the same thing where <laughs> that party starts off, hey, just cracking jokes. And right. then by the end of it, it's like, wow. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I you're forgot talk- about that episode. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the reminder. Yeah, no problem. Well, you're talking about TV a little bit, and I know that you're working with Amazon on uh, Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that your experience on Dear White People sort of... Um, I don't know, like the, the scale and, and scope of TV is so much faster than film, obviously. And no, like, no, did that... you know, it, it did. You know, undoubtedly, it gave me more confidence to go into um, the to go into making Underground Railroad, not necessarily with Amazon, but just to making it, period. Mm-hmm. It gave me much more confidence. You know, Justin was really good about inviting me into the process. So even when he was doing the writer's room, you know, I had no input on the script, but I would check in with him and he let me know how it was going. And then once we got there to make the film, you know, all of it was sort of like, was physically together in the same space, you know, they were writing and editing and, and filming, and all those things was a lovely crash course, you know, and I'm really glad you brought that up, because this happened even before Moonlight, you know, and I don't know that I would have gotten a chance to direct television, you know, in a pre-Moonlight world, mm-hmm. not been for Justin Simeon, so hats off to him. I was also in the writer's room on The Leftovers, and so all these experiences, uh, I think, gave me the confidence to go down the road, because Underground Railroad's a really big undertaking, yeah. the biggest thing I've ever done. Um, but I do have experience to fall back on. It's mm-hmm. helped me through the process. And uh, I know that you just got like a, a development deal that was just announced a few days ago with them yeah. as well. Can you tell me about any of the new projects that you're working on? Yeah, I can tell you about projects specifically, but I think the process of working with them on Underground, which we've been working with them, I mean, we had a writer's room for the show right before going into production on Bill Street. It's been so wonderful and just fluid that it seemed 
It's like, well, we're going to be here making this thing. Why don't we make more things together? And what I love about that deal is it's not a Barry Jenkins deal. You know, that's a deal with Pastel. And so myself and David Romansky, Mark Serak and Sarah Murphy, my partners in the company, we're not just here to make Barry Jenkins work. You know, mm-hmm. We're trying to bring all these voices that either have a moonlight in them or have a true detective in them, whatever it is, but don't have access to the tools um, that Amazon provides. And so we're hoping to usher new voices you know, into this realm uh, alongside mine. Very cool. I think I probably have time for one more question. Um, and I'm going to... I'm going to end on a weird one here. So uh, this is a question I'm going to leave entirely up to your interpretation. If you had to choose the most Barry Jenkins moment from Mm. Beale Street, what Mm. would it be and why? No, I I know that one. Ah, shit. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to give two. Um, It would either be um, when Sharon, when Regina King as Sharon, arrives in Puerto Rico and she's looking at her reflection in the mirror and trying to decide who she's going to be. You know, to me, this idea of identity, this idea of placing on a, a false strength or the projection of strength to protect others around you mm-hmm. um, and, and those things coming undone. I, I just love the simplicity of it. You know, again, it's not literature, it's not theater, it's cinema. You know, there's not a single word. Regina lands in Puerto Rico. There's not a single word for four minutes. Not a single word that you understand everything that character is feeling. You know, that to me, you know, I'm, it's very well known that I worship Claire Denis. You know, that to me is me as a student of Claire Denis really utilizing cinema, which is not literature and not theater, and really taking the actor full body and presenting them in a the way, in, in a way that gets at a metaphor that I couldn't get to with words. Mm-hmm. The other one is so fucking super melodramatic and lush and saturated, but not in the book. After Tish and Fani get this get the apartment, they have this conversation with the Dave Franco character, mm-hmm. Levy, they're walking down the street and they just yell to the sky. Yeah. And that to me is peak, gooey, sentimental, like soft Barry Jenkins, which is an impulse I try to reject. But I think people need to, especially young black people, need to be able to unleash joy in an unbridled way. And and that moment for me, it's it's you know, I've never it's my favorite moment in the film. Mm-hmm. Um because I think you, you, I want that for those characters so badly, yeah, so badly, and Stefan and Kiki are so committed to it. It's just, you know, when you grow up as a child and you understand what relationships are, families, you're watching the Brady Bunch, you know, that moment, what they do in that scene, is kind of like the embodiment of it. Sure. And you know, it's something that's not in the novel, and I feel like it had to be in the film, and it's. Not my best impulses, but fuck it. You know, I just love it. <laughs> and there's like, that's like one of the most heartbreaking moments in the movie is like right in that scene, he says, We've got all the time mm-hmm. in the world. And exactly. you know, because of what you've seen already, that that's exactly. not true. You know, he says, he says, uh, he says, uh, Oh, no, there's a few things. I'm thinking of, uh, you believe we're going to make it. But, uh, but he also says, uh, Are you ready for this? Which is a mirror. Because in the opening scene, she, she, he asked, she asked him, Are you ready for this? I've never been ready for anything in my life. Mm-hmm. He says, and then, because the whole movie's uh, uh, framed through her consciousness, then it's flipped, where he asks her, are you ready for this? She says, I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. But are they ready? But are they ready? How could anybody fucking be? Is Regina ready to go to Puerto Rico? No. Yeah. But she has to go, you know? And these kids have to live their lives. Well, this congratulations good, again, man. I appreciate, I appreciate you, it. Man. Yeah. Thank nice you. Nice to meet you, man. What's your name again? Ben. Ben. Well, I'm with SlashFilm.com. Yeah, I, I tell them not to send me the reviews, so I don't, I don't know if you've reviewed the film or not. I have not, but I loved it. Okay. I think we have a review from uh, from Toronto. But, okay, cool. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, Thank man. You, bro. Thank you. Man, thank you.
there you have it. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Barry Jenkins, and I encourage everyone to go see this movie if you can. If Beale Street Could Talk has already opened in Los Angeles and New York, and it arrives in theaters nationwide on December 25th, please go support this movie. It's tremendous. It's uh, it's heartbreaking. It's quiet. It's intimate. And it's one of the best movies of 2018. Again, my name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. And of course, my writing is at SlashFilm.com. You can find more about If Beale Street Could Talk at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is normally published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find at the site. And I would encourage you also, if you're just a listener to this podcast, check out SlashFilm.com. There's tons of stuff there every day that we don't talk about on the website, and it's really great stuff. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, or concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. And don't forget to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That really, really does help us out a lot. If you want to give us a Christmas gift or a holiday gift of some kind, take five minutes out of your day, give us a, a nice review, tell your friends, spread the word any way you can about this show, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening, everybody.